Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Episode number 16. I'm Cam Connor with my son Chris. We've had a little bit of a break here. I think I've been off about a month. Enjoyed the holidays, some time off. Over the holidays, my wife bought a 35 pound turkey. I know I've cooked 20, 25 pounders. I didn't even know if the 35 pound bird was going to fit in the oven. And I didn't even know how long to cook it, but eventually pulled it out. It was a great tasting bird. So glad to be back. And thanks everyone for checking in and seeing if we actually are going to continue recording. And we were on holidays, but we're excited to be back. And before we start with the topic today, which is uh, the top five toughest fighters that Cam fought against, which will be peppered in with some interesting fight stories, we will answer a few questions that we received while we were away. And the first one comes from Joseph in Winnipeg, and he wants to know if we have considered having a view from the penalty box t-shirt, and we haven't actually considered that, but a few people have asked if we would get one designed and get one put up for sale. So we're definitely considering that. We have one in the works, so as soon as it's ready, we will release it probably on your Twitter account, and we'll let people know. It'd be good to wear in a in a hockey game show who's the tough guys in the crowd, right? Right. And and really, you know, that's nice you want the t shirts, but you know, let's if if you if there's a few people out there that would like them, we'll put them all together and and we'll do it, but you know, only if there's a demand for them. I'm in no eagle trip here, so if uh if there's a demand for it, we'll certainly do it. But if there's two people that want it, I mean that doesn't say too much, so thanks thanks for that though. Well, we won't put your face on the on the t-shirt. Oh, oh, wait a second. Come on. <laughs> so we do have another question, and this came in through our email, which is viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. You can also tweet my dad at camconnornhl. So this question, it's called Growing Up and Playing Hockey in Winnipeg, and it's from Brad. He writes, Hi, Cam. Found the podcast a couple of days ago and have been binge listening ever since. I enjoy the stories and really appreciate what you and your son are doing. I grew up in Winnipeg in the 60s and 70s. I now live in the U.S., but I can't seem to convince my kids what it was like to play hockey almost all of your hockey games outside or have all your practices outside in a Winnipeg winter. Could you please tell my kids and all the others listening who haven't had the wonderful experience of a Canadian Prairie hockey practice at 6.30 on a Tuesday night in January. Brad. Brad, I got to say, you know, 60s and 70s, the weather's sure changed out here in Canada, here in the States. When we were growing up in Winnipeg, when I was growing up in Winnipeg, it was rare that we got to go indoors until about 16 is when I started on a fairly regular basis, more or less when I made junior, actually. But I remember... Going to the outdoor rinks, probably daily. There was lots of outdoor rinks, and you could put the ice in probably like October, and you wouldn't, it wouldn't melt until like spring. 
And I know here in Edmonton, I think they're just starting to put some ice in here, and it might last a month or two at the most. So times have changed. And a couple of things that I remember is, number one, it snowed an awful lot at Winnipeg. So it was rare that you went to the rink and you didn't have to shovel before you got on the ice. And so one thing I do remember, and I don't think you'll see it again, is when you would shovel the outdoor rinks when you were a kid, you started in, well, I'll just say October, and you would shovel and you throw it over the boards. And it snowed so much and people were shoveling the rinks all the time. That after like January, February time frame, there was, this is a true story. The snow, when you were throwing over the boards, all of a sudden, the snow on the other side of the boards was the equal height of the boards. So the boards were four feet up. The snow on the other side was four feet high from throwing it over. And it got to the point, no word of a lie whatsoever, that it would be another four feet high higher than the boards. So you had a huge snowbank all the way around the board. So when you're a little kid learning how to shoot a puck, and you would take a slap shot or a wrist shot, and you missed, it went higher than the boards, it would go into this big snowbank. So you'd have to take your stick and tunnel in there and look for the puck. And I know in the springtime, I used to go back to the rink and walk around the outside of it. And I used to pick up 40 pucks that people lost in the snowbanks. So, Brad, you were 100% correct. Back in those days, it was cold out there. It was windy, but we're Canadians. We love to skate. We love the outdoors. I remember having to break into these shacks that were around the rink so that if there was little club teams playing, they had a key to get in there, and there was a little pot belly stove, and it was warm in there. So between periods, if they had to shovel the ice again, the kids would get to go inside and then come back out. So when I would go there, it was so freaking cold. And even the, like the lights were off uh, that would shine on the rink. So I would have to break into those shacks and put my skates on and try to survive the night skating. But once you start skating on the outdoor rinks, it might be a little cold. But after a while, you start sweating and it's not cold anymore for the most part. So Brad, 100% right, buddy. And would you uh, actually walk to the outdoor rinks uh, before school? Is that true? You know... Not me too much. There's kids that maybe were a little bit more keen than I was. I was on it pretty well every day. And when you're very young, you know, your dad would do up the skates at the house. And then you'd walk over on your tippy toes all the way to the rink with your skates on. And you used to see skate blades, like the marks in the snow and in the ice, all the way from, you know, down the sidewalks. And you know people were walking in their skates. You don't see that anymore, but... I, I didn't I didn't go very often sometimes, but it was rare that I'd go before school. I like my bed too much. So you recently on Twitter acknowledged the death of a hockey legend, Johnny Bauer, who is someone that you met and someone that you respected and admire. So do you have anything to say about Johnny Bauer? And maybe for those who don't know, talk a little bit about his impact on the game. I'm more attracted to modest people, modest athletes. There's a lot of showboats out there. Look at me, look at me. I don't really get along with those type of athletes when they got to have all the attention drawn to them. I just never respected that. Johnny Bauer was somebody that accomplished way more than I would ever accomplish or a lot of other players. 
He worked hard. Being a goalie, was in the minors for quite a long time. He got his big break. I believe it was with Toronto Maple Leafs. And he played in the era when there was only six teams out there. And they, everybody has seen the old clips where the goalie is in net with little skinny pads and no mask on and they're diving in front of pucks. And Johnny, if you, if you, if you were up close, you could see that his face stopped a lot of pucks. Like he had a nice friendly grandfather look about him. He was quiet. He was humble. He had a wonderful smile that made you feel welcome when you were with him. I only got to know him probably for about six, seven hours. We golfed together in a tournament, a golf tournament in Toronto. I had a, a group with me, and so we golfed in fivesomes, and Johnny Bowers had five in his group, so they made us all golf together. So walking around the course, uh, got to know Johnny, and then after at the banquet, we sat next to each other. I really liked the fellow. He was an older man, but warm and just, a, again, a modest fella. You have to kind of pull the stories out of out of him. But I, I remember sitting with Johnny at that banquet after, and I said to Johnny, I said, you know, Johnny, you screwed me around when I was a kid. And he kind of looked at me quizzical, and he says, well, what do you mean? Well, the story is, is when I was living in Winnipeg, I think I was in, like, grade 8. And I was at the junior high, and I had read, and you know, we didn't have a pro team in Winnipeg, and I had read in the paper that Johnny Bauer and Eddie Schack were coming to Winnipeg, and they were signing autographs at the high school, which was about a five-minute walk from our junior high. I said, I have got to get over there and get their autographs. Now, I didn't watch very much hockey at all, but when there's a goalie that doesn't wear a mask, even if you're just walking by the TV, you're going to remember that face for sure. So when I went over to the high school, I snuck out of class, actually, and, and uh, I just buggered off. And I went over there, and I stood in line, and I got to, uh, it was in Johnny Bauer's line, and I get up front, and I got my pen and paper, and I politely asked Johnny if he could please sign, it, like get an autograph. And he said, well, for sure. So he signed my sheet of paper, and it said, I believe it says something like, you know, best wishes, Eddie Shack. And I, I look, I look at that, and and I'm, and I look at Johnny Bauer, and I just get out of line, and I'm saying, I must have these guys mixed up. So I get in Eddie Shack's line, and I get up to the front, and I politely ask for his autograph, and then he, Shack signs it, Johnny Bauer. So I said, okay, obviously I got these two guys mixed up. And I went home and I pinned it on the wall. And months later, when they're back on TV, sure enough, I was right. Eddie Shack was, Johnny Bauer was in net and Eddie Shack was on the forward line. So now I'm with Johnny Bauer and I, and I was telling him this story and he starts laughing. He says, I remember that. And I said, what do you mean you remember that? He said, back in those days, he said, when I was playing with the Leafs, Outside the Maple Leaf Gardens, fans would ask me for an autograph. So I go to autograph a sheet that's already got player signatures on it, and I noticed my name was already signed on there. And he couldn't figure this out. And so one day, he caught on. He said to me that Eddie Shack was illiterate. He couldn't read or write, at least back in those days. He said, and Eddie couldn't write his own name, he said, but for some reason, he could write my name. And so... 
Eddie Shack, when people asked for the autograph, used to just sign it Johnny Bauer. So Johnny said, ah, screw it. And he just started signing it Eddie Shack. So I found that pretty comical. And, you know, if Eddie couldn't read or write, he should have done well for himself outside of hockey. Uh, understand he's a multimillionaire, so good for you, buddy. And so before we get to this list of the top five toughest fighters that you fought, I know that you have some stories about a road trip to Indianapolis and some interesting things that happened while you were there during the, your WHA time. So care to share that? You know, when you travel around, you don't expect anything really to happen out of the ordinary. But over 10, 11 seasons of traveling, you can't help but run into situations. And obviously there's things I could talk about. There's some stories I can't talk about because... There's guys I'll get in trouble and I'll never mention their name. I'm, I'm not that kind of guy, even if I don't like you. I still won't squeal on you. But I remember two two things in particular. Well, first of all, Indianapolis, Indiana, That was they had the Indianapolis Racers, which was a world hockey team. I remember when I was playing with Phoenix Roadrunners in the World Hockey Association, we had a, a game one night and it, it was a long game and when the game is over, you know, you go home or you go out for beer, especially if you're a single guy, you don't usually go right home and you grab a sandwich or a steak sandwich after. And When you do get home, you're laying in bed and you're still wired from the game and you say to yourself, man, I should have fought that guy or why did I shoot instead of passing the puck or why did I pass? I should have shot. And that game replays in your head and you can't fall asleep till quite late in the morning. So after that game, we had to go to the airport real early because we had a game in Indianapolis. And we were dragging our butts and it was two connections we had to make and they were late. It was from early morning travel. We didn't get into Indianapolis till like 5, 5.15. Got back to our hotel, put our bags in the room. We really only had maybe 10 minutes just to lay on the bed and chill out and get some energy and get ready for the game. So then the arena was called Marcus Square Arena. So a bunch of us meet down in the lobby and uh, there's four or five of us. And we're walking to the rink. It was about a 10-minute walk away. And we're all saying, how the hell are we going to play a good game tonight? We're dragging our butt flying, you know, sitting and waiting and waiting. Like, you get tired doing that. And plus, if you didn't sleep well the night before and you had a couple games in a row, so we were all tired, and I remember saying, where am I going to get that energy? But you know what? you got to do your best, and so be it. So on the way to the, to the game, we noticed two or three players on our team walking from the arena back towards us. And we said, why are you coming back towards us? And they said, well, the game is canceled tonight. We said, well, how could that be? They said, what had happened was that in Phoenix, the airlines had left all their bags on the tarmac. And if you think about it, that's never happened before that I know of. That airlines, I'm sure it cost them a few bucks because they would have had to pay for our flights, our hotel room, our meal money. I'm sure they had to pay the Indianapolis racers money for renting the arena and all the people that showed up to work there and the tickets and fly us back and so somebody got in a lot of trouble for that. But when the guys that were telling us the game was canceled and we were dragging our ass, all of a sudden, 
you find some energy and you go, holy cow, that's great. Let's go to the bar for a beer. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel tired anymore. So it's kind of psychological. I mean, we were tired. But when I knew we didn't have to play, all of a sudden, I found some energy. So I found that pretty interesting, unless you were the airlines. And the other thing that I remember about Indianapolis, there's a few things. But one of the ones I'll talk about. And so that arena from the hotel we stayed at a Hilton and it was roughly about a 10, maybe 15 minute walk, not too far. So I got up early and I knew of a little restaurant that served breakfast. So I went by myself to this restaurant and they sat me next to a window next to a sidewalk on the other side of the, of the window. And I'm eating my breakfast and I put my head up and there is a man walking by. I could have reached out and touched this guy. He had a shotgun to... A, a, a guy's head, and as it turned out, what it was, it was there was somebody who was apparently trying to rob a bank next door, and then the cops came and he escorted the bank manager out, and it looked like he had a coat hanger that he had kind of pulled apart, and had it wrapped around his finger and the trigger finger, and it was hooked around, and you'd have to see it to understand what I'm saying. It was hooked around the bank manager's neck, and then it went back to this guy's trigger finger. So he was walking this guy slowly down the sidewalk past me, and sure enough, that was on the news that night, but uh, pretty weird, huh? Just sitting there watching the guy go by with a shotgun. So what happened to the guy? Well, at the end of the day, I don't think the bank manager got hurt. I think he got scared pretty good, and I think the police were able to uh, talk the gunman into, you know, giving up the gun and not getting any more charges than he already has. So let's transition to your list of your top five toughest fighters that you fought against. And we want to thank Ricky from Twitter, who actually suggested this topic. And we are looking for other topics that you guys find interesting. So send a tweet to Cam Connor NHL. I guess we recommend that you Google some of these players, check them out on YouTube, because while I don't actually know the list that you'll give, they are from the 70s and early 80s, so they might not be, I guess, household names. Maybe they are. You might surprise me, but you could Google, see what they look like, see their stats while my dad's saying, sharing the story, and so I guess we'll turn it over to you. You know, it's interesting when you say the top five. That's hard to define. I mean, we all know back in the day, I didn't play against him, but Bob Probert, he was almost the... For sure, the heavyweight champ. That guy, if he wanted to fight five minutes, go toe-to-toe, he was willing to do it. He never backed down. I think every he was like Muhammad Ali. Everybody had respect for this guy. He wasn't a chirper. He wasn't a showboat. He was a tough guy that uh, I think everybody that played with the Bob Probert respected the guy immensely. And so, you know, there was lots of tough guys out there, you know, when I played. But how do you define... You know, my toughest fights. I, I kind of wonder about that. There was guys that I was told, you know, boy, these guys are tough. But for whatever reason, I just kicked the shit out of these guys. It was like, I don't know why. I just beat them up. And I can't say they were tough because I did pretty well against them. So I think when I talk about, you know, my toughest fights, it's one that you knew you were in a fight. And uh, it could have gone either way. So to me, that's how I define a tough fight. So when I look back again, you know, for the 
people that are a little younger, some of these names may be, mean nothing to you, but you can always Google, look them up. And well, like the first one that comes to mind, and I've talked about him before, was a big defenseman that played for the Philadelphia Flyers in the NHL. His name was Ben Wilson, and he fought all comers, all the tough guys. He played in the NHL for quite a while. And again, if you Google him, you'll see that he fought the Stan Jonathans and Clark Gillies and the Terry O'Reilly's and all the named fighters from back in that era. When I fought Ben, and I've mentioned this before, so I won't talk about it too much. I had just came off, uh, I broke my left hand for the second or third time. I just got my hand out of the cast pretty well the day before. Ben Wilson in Edmonton in front of the player's box. The Edmonton player's box elbowed me right in the head. I didn't have a helmet on. I, I can't take that because if you take it, when you get the pro and somebody does something to you and you take it, all of a sudden, guys will pick up on this because people prey on weak guys. So even if you don't want to fight the guy, you better fight the guy because somebody else will say, oh, I can get away with elbowing Connor. He's not going to do anything. So... Regardless of who it is, if somebody wants to give you a cheap shot, don't take it. You go after them, and others will just give you a little bit more space. But if you don't fight back, guys will uh, will definitely take advantage, thinking that you're a little bit weaker and you can be an easy guy to hit. So when Ben gave me the elbow, I had no choice but to fight him. I did pretty good considering, as I said earlier, I only had one hand because when you break your hand, it's still pretty weak. And I knew that if I started throwing my left, my hand would break again, and then I'm out another four to six weeks. And that's the last thing. I had so many injuries that year. So I pretty well only fought him with the one hand. If that one is on, uh, you know, you can Google that fight between Ben and I. On YouTube. On YouTube, yeah. I could have done better. Ben got me kind of behind the back of the neck and kind of pulled me over. And when you see some of these fights... Uh, you know, he probably hit me three or four, whatever it was, in a row. But that one got me in the face, and I, 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 I never felt any of those. So maybe they were glancing blows. But Ben, good fighter, can never take anything away from him. He fought the best and beat the best. So, And so when you look at these top fighters, do you look at them just that they're a top fighter that you might fight? Or do you actually know what makes them top? Like, oh, he has a good right hand, or... Like what their techniques are? Do you know well, it to that level? Well, you, I, I do today. Back when I played, it was rare that we got to see. Today, every game is taped. They bring you back after the game, or the next morning, you go over everything, and you can you can take a look at the fights, and you can see from all over the league, and, and you can pick up on how people fight. And when I watch today. I can't figure it out how they turn sideways. I don't really get that. Nobody ever turned sideways and fought. We come right at each other like a street fight. You don't see a street fighter turning sideways, so I don't really get that technique. But you kind of read the paper and you see, I'll just say Ben Wilson, oh, he's fought this guy, he's fought that guy, he's fought another guy. And then you kind of know on every team, and when you play them, you can see who's taking the body and being aggressive because they've got confidence. So they don't mind running everybody. And plus, when you do look at the paper and you see they're fighting everybody, then you kind of know who you got to keep your head up. And so that's, in my mind, is how you can uh, tell. And then you know guys on the other team. And if you happen to want to talk about fighters, they'll say, you know, if Ben Wilson played on my team, they'd say, you know, he's not that good. He, 
like Tiger Williams. You know, he got lots of penalty minutes, but I played against him in junior as well as pro, and he 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 suckers you number one. Like you don't even know you're in a fight, and he'll sucker you. Or if it's a fair fight, he grabs you and he just hang on to you. And then you read in the paper, oh, he had five minute fight against so and so, but he did mostly all grabbing, right? So it's it's deceiving sometimes when you see penalty minutes and guys fighting because some of them, like I said, are just grabbers and they get, still get it's called a fight. Well, speaking of grabbers, it's a little off topic, but did you see how Thornton got his beard ripped off in a fight? <laughs> you know what? I actually heard about it, but I, I never did see it. But uh, maybe I better check that out. Has that ever? Have you ever seen that before? The only thing that I've heard of it, I didn't see it, is when Bobby Hall was playing for Winnipeg Jets. He got in, uh, it was a kind of a, I think it was a, actually a bench brawl. I think his name was, in the movie Slapshot, there's the Hanson Brothers, and this one guy's name is Dave Hanson. A real, like his name is Dave Hanson, and I think he was fighting Bobby Hall. And Bobby Hall was wearing, a, I believe, like a toupee. And he pulled off Hall's toupee, and I was laying on the ice, which was pretty funny. Okay, so who's the next fighter on your list? Well... There was a guy, his name was Gilles Billado, indoor hockey, and he uh, his nickname was Bad News Billado, and he probably outweighed me by an easy 20 pounds, so I might have been an inch taller than him, but this guy was all freaking muscle, and he had a scary-looking face, too. Like, some guys could scare you just looking at you. He was pretty scary-looking, and he was built like a tank. Now everyone's rushing to to Google what he looks like because I'm curious. Yeah, no, he's a scary looking guy, and so and he would wear a helmet that would cover every. We didn't have face masks back in those days with the shields, and his helmet would go right down to his eyebrows, and so he had very little to punch. And again, I wasn't wearing a helmet, so there was I was more of a target. But anyways, uh, bad news, Billado. He he was tough, and when I would. If I was to fight him, we drop our gloves, we square off, and I keep him at a distance, I would do pretty good because I've got long arms and I could throw him quick and hit hard. But Billado, when we would collide, all of a sudden he's like Tiger Williams, the gloves are off and he's fighting me. So I couldn't start off with a good distance between us because a lot of these guys, they'll grab first and then start to swing, whereas for myself, I would throw... I wouldn't grab, I would be punching you. And you're trying to grab me, you already took two or three, right? But with Billado, he must have figured out what I, how I like to fight. And I was pretty strong myself. But he would get in close, bang me, and all of a sudden the gloves are off. And we're, we're in tight, swinging it out. So I could feel his strength. He was a tough guy. And he didn't play regular. He was just there to fight. And that's that wasn't any fun when you had to fight guys that are just there to fight. They weren't playing regular. Because in the game of hockey, if you got a regular shift and you bang each other, you know, and it comes, that's part of the game. But not when you're just a goon. And I don't mean to be talking bad about Gilles Billado. He's, uh, he's dead now. But, you know, that's that's how he fought. And I guess that's what he had to do to, to stay and play the game of hockey. And according to his Wikipedia, it says he was known for his fierce, aggressive style of play and his fighting ability, but had limited hockey skills. Um, off the ice, he was known to be a gentleman. Did you find that? Uh, I didn't. I'd leave the bar if he was in there. And uh, it says he died of undiagnosed pancreatic cancer on August 12, 2008. 
Yeah. Well, again, you know, I, I, I don't want to seem like a knock him. He would, but he's a tough guy, and he did what he had to do to play the game of hockey. I think we'd all like to be Wayne Gretzky, but it's not possible, right? So, Okay, who's next on your list? Well, another guy that I fought, I had just came from the World Hockey, and uh, I played with Montreal, and I fought a guy when we played Boston Bruins. His name was Al Secord. Al, he was a big, strong boy, and when I was uh, training for Montreal's training camp, I stayed the summer in Houston, and it... Uh, was kind of counterproductive because back in those days, nobody ever told you what to do, how to train. You just better come to camp in shape. So I was never lazy. I worked out every day. And when I would go back in the summers to Winnipeg, where I'm from, I would put the boxing gloves on and go to the park with a couple of buddies and we would spar and, you know, and my hands would become quicker. We would use the weights. I'd be running. In Houston, I didn't have that buddy to do that with. So I didn't throw them in the off season like I usually would. I didn't have access to a heavy bag. And so what I told myself was there was this golf course and it was a five mile run all the way around it. So every day in Houston, it's a hundred percent humidity. So I told myself if I went out every day and I ran around this golf course at a really good pace, you know, I'd be in pretty good shape and it was hot boy. It was hot. And so I figured if I could take that heat and work out, you know, for that five-mile run, when I got to training camp and it was indoors in a cool rink, I figured I'd be just flying. Well, it had the opposite effect on me. I go to camp, my muscles, I lost them. I got to build like a long-distance runner, you know, but I'd always worked out as a kid. I worked for a concrete company, so I was strong. And I think that core was still there, but I lost a lot in that off season. And I remember Scotty Bowman saying to me, he looked at me and he says to me, first time he saw me, is this as big as you are? And I wanted to say, no, I'm bigger, Scotty. What do you think? So, you know, I had shrunk. And so now go back to Secord. So now I'd watch Secord and uh, I could see every time there was a face off and somebody would get in his way, he'd punch him in the head or smack him. And people were a little bit leery of him and I don't know why he didn't scare me and so I just said okay when I get out against him I know when I go get in his way he's going to do something sure enough we dropped the gloves somehow we ended up because we started in close ended up in a big bear hug I could feel his strength and I wasn't letting go of him he wasn't letting go of me and we just kind of both hang on to each hung on to each other we just kind of peel all the way down to the ice we didn't really get in it swing, but I think we had a mutual friend. And after the game, this mutual friend came in the dressing room to me. And he said, what do you think of Secord? I said, that's one strong dude. And then he said, that's funny. I just talked to him and he said the same thing about you. So I, I know that he had a way better career than me. And he fought a lot of the tough boys. I knew the potential was there, but I, I never got to rumble with him again. But I, I would put him in there as somebody who was tough. And I probably would have liked it. He probably would have liked to go with me one more time as well. But but Secord, Al Secord, was, he, he was a good fighter. Do you know what he's up to now? Last I heard is that he was an airline pilot. Yes, I thought I was going to surprise ah. you. So it says he's an airline pilot with American Airlines and resides in Texas. He's no 59 kidding. years old. No kidding. How do you like that? So, number four. I've talked about this guy before in the movie Slapshot. There was the three Hanson brothers, 
This guy, in reality, they were the Carlson brothers. And this guy was Jack Carlson. He played in the WHA for Minnesota Fighting Saints. I think he might have played for one other team, but I'm not sure about that. Then he went to the NHL for a while. You know, Jack and I collided a few times, and I think he had some respect for me. He didn't go out of his way to cause any problems, nor did I go out of my way to cause problems with him. But we did have the one fight, and again, he's uh, he's bigger than me. He's taller, and, you know, we both have long arms, and you could tell he knew what he was doing. When I fought him, and I, like I said, I got him down, and I was on top of him, and I remember the way I described it the last time I talked about him. I felt like I was riding a Brahma book. You could just feel the strength of this guy, and I knew I was not letting him up because I didn't want a round two because you never know how you're going to do in that second round. I might have beat him up, or he might have beat me up, but I, I, I felt his strength, and so he got my respect. So I, I would say Jack Carlson was right up there, too. And how many Carlson brothers are there, three? Yeah, there's three, and they actually were all on one line. And you knew they were there to fight because... They would go the length of the ice, and one of them would fall down. So you knew they were there just to fight. And why is he the toughest of the three? Well, I fought like one of them, and I think his name was Steve Carlson. He was probably a decent hockey player, and he really wasn't. I think he was the youngest of the three brothers. So when you got two older brothers that can fight like that, you don't have to fight your battles because they'll fight them for you. So he wasn't as tough as uh, Jack and. And Jeff, I think his name was. Those two were really tough because I think I've told the story about me fighting Jeff. Like I said, I fought the two of them in their own rink. Tough boys, tough boys. And the last fighter on your list. This was a fella by the name of Kim Claxi. And Kim, I first met Kim when I was 18 years old. And I was playing for the Winnipeg Junior Jets. You know, we were on a two or three road, three two or three week road trip, and the coach said to us, "It's going to be rough hockey. Only Cam and Blair, you're allowed to fight." So I, I didn't play much shift. And when we got back off that road trip, I said, "No way, I'm playing hockey like this. Just going to be the fighter." So I quit the team. And the coach says, "Well, we got to trade you. Where do you not want to play?" And I said, "Well, I don't want to go to Victoria or Vancouver because you didn't have very good hockey teams." So what does the coach do? Trades me to Victoria. So, at 19, I went to Victoria's training camp. And, you know, I was the tough guy in Manitoba Junior. I've got articles written by reporters saying that I was the toughest guy and there was nobody even close to me in fighting ability. And I guess management knew that I could fight. And so they wanted to see me roughing it up and playing that aggressive game. And so there was a guy on Victoria's team. He had played the year before when he was 17. So he's 18. And I was 19. And uh, this is true. You knew the guy was a fighter because Kim, he couldn't, his name was Kim Claxton. He couldn't shoot the puck. He was a defenseman from, you know, in the offensive zone. From the, from the He was a defenseman at the blue line. He couldn't take a slap shot from the blue line to the net in the air. It would take one bounce. And it was his second year in the Western Hockey League, which is the top junior league in Canada. And I was, remember, I was surprised going, he can't even shoot you know, in, in the air from the blue line to hit the net. You know, you knew he was a tough guy, and that's why he was there. And he used to beat up Clark Gillies on a regular basis. Like, this boy was tough. So we had a scrimmage the very first day I'm there, and Kim Clax and I are on the same team. And we're having our scrimmage, and in, in the middle of the scrimmage, the coach blows a whistle, and he says, uh, 
Kim, uh, you go on the other team over there, switch with that defenseman. So right away, I knew he wanted us to fight. That's why he put Kim out there against me. And Kim knew what he was supposed to do. So the puck goes into his end. He grabs the puck, stands behind the net. I'm coming in full tilt. And he could have moved the puck if he wanted to. And then, you know, I probably had no reason to hit him because he didn't have the puck anymore. But Kim put the puck between his feet. And he waited for him behind the net. So I'm coming in full tilt. Bang! We both knew we were fighting. So as soon as we collided, the gloves were off. And we had a great fight. And so I knew he was one tough boy. He was a lefty as well. And he knew I was tough. Well, at the end of training camp, the coach, you know, we had some more exhibition games. And he was interested in me being the fighter. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it because you want me to do it. If something happens, I'll do it. So I just didn't, I didn't play my game because I didn't want to be that guy. Kim, he did that. He fought lots of guys and boy, he killed them. So anyways, I get treated to Flynn Fawn and then, you know, it's how interesting that was, right? He told me, Victoria coach, that I was the biggest disappointment in training camp. So go to Flynn Fawn. Well, the rest, you can look up my stats. So I had an outstanding year there, 300 and something, 70 something penalty minutes and uh, 47 goals. So I had a great year. When I first got there, the coach says to me, Patty Janelle, he says, I got a chance to get this guy in in Victoria. His name is Kim Claxon. What do you think? I said, get him. Because hockey back then was so rough. He said, you think so? I said, get him. So they traded a pretty good hockey player to Victoria. We got Claxon. And when the two of us were on the same team, we made music. We had a very tough team. Plus, there was a few other supporting cast members. And we made them braver. But Claxon. So I fought him in Victoria. We hung around all the time, but we were both competitive and we're not backing down. We ended up fighting in the dressing room. He still had his skates on and he come at me. And I'm in my bare feet and all I'm thinking about is he's going to chop my toes off, this guy. So we were fighting in the dressing room. And just so happens, I don't even know why, but the coach of Swift Current Broncos, I believe his last name was Dunn, happened to come in our dressing room. And he sees us fighting. Everybody else was not getting in there on our team. And he jumped in there to break up the fight. And I think Claxton ended up hooking him because he was in the wrong spot. But so, so I would say Kim Claxton is another top five fighter. And I've, I've mentioned before, with Kim Claxton, he was fearless. He fought all the tough guys. Fought Semenko five times in one game. He had no problem fighting anybody. So I definitely, definitely would put Kim Claxon in the top five. And I believe he lives in Pittsburgh today. He's uh, in the insurance business, and he's doing very, very well for himself. I just always think of such a, a tough fighter, but with the name Kim. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And he's got a baby face. If you Google that guy, you'll see his picture. He's got a little baby face. I could tell you more stories off ice about Kim Claxon, and maybe we'll do that another podcast. Just like in Calgary, fighting in the bars, and oh my God, he's unbelievable. Okay, so we'll wrap it up. I guess we could say, out of the five that you listed, could you choose the top toughest fighter, or is it hard to say? I could. I'll, I'll tell you the top two. I, I, honest to God, you know, you can never take anything away from. Ben Wilson, his record speaks for himself. Kim Claxon, 
he didn't have the ability, the talent, but he had the heart. And um, he did whatever he had to do to help his team. So just for that reason, I loved playing with Kim. And I believe, you know, he was part of the reason that I was successful in junior as well. So in my mind, I'm going to say those two guys could play with me any day of the week. Okay, so we will wrap it up. But if uh, anyone wants to send us an email, again, it's viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. Send a tweet at CamConnorNHL. And we would really appreciate any reviews on iTunes. That would be great. And we realize we're not the best at promoting this podcast. So if you want to share our podcast with other hockey fans, we'd love that. Hey, even current players, I bet you they'd like to hear some of the hockey stories from days gone by. So any help out there, we would appreciate it. So until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam.